When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Poutine Podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. In this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, we take a look at the possible involvement of a Yeti in one of the most enduring mysteries of modern times, the incident at Dyatlov Pass. I covered this story in Chapter 13 of the Perpetual Puzzle section of my best-selling book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, available at fine booksellers now. The story began in 1959 in the northern Ural Mountains on Kolat Sakil, which translated from the local Manzi dialect means dead mountain. A group of nine experienced hikers, two women and eight men, on a skiing expedition from the Ural Polytechnic Institute in Yekaterinburg, Russia, died on the mountain that February under mysterious circumstances. The site was later named Dyatlov Pass in memory of the group's leader, 23-year-old Igor Alexievich Dyatlov. Later in the show, we'll chat with Lyle Blackburn, cryptozoologist, podcaster, and musician. But first, here's Morgan with this episode's story. How many of us have told stories around the campfire? We've sat around on cold nights, gathered by the heat of the flame in the dark of the forest, with flashlights and s'mores and spoke names like Candyman, the Boogeyman, and the Demons of the Dark. Many adults and kids have strong memories of laying in their tent, hearing raccoons and deer snooping through their leftover food while their tentmates wondered if it might be indeed one of the monsters they had envisioned around the campfire. For First Nations people around the world, the creatures of the woods wild in the mountains have a significance that Western settlers and descendants rarely understand or respect. The roar of the wings of the eagles and the thunderbirds, the power of the bear, and the intricate roles nature plays with all living things and the creator, all have legends and stories that often become brushed aside by our modern science-driven world. Here, the world of spirit gets trampled in our speaking and in our actions as urban sprawl begins to spread into what was once contested territory by both humans and cryptids alike. However, across the globe, in the frozen wild of Russia, the stories of monsters and myths are not so easily set aside. In Tibet, the Sherpa people speak openly about their life with a creature that they believe is the protector and the god of the mountains. One who preys on their zapko, their beast of burden, 
a cross between a yak and a cow, and occasionally on the people themselves. They respect it, but their fear of it runs deep. In the West, we know it as the Yeti, but it was not until an expedition to Mount Everest by famed climber Eric Shipton that the giant, hairy, bipedal ape was brought to attention. These giant ape-like monsters with brown or golden hair, conical heads, and of huge stature were said to have left behind tracks which Shipton's team promptly photographed and grew famous for. And it's said by the locals that they are positioned to enact justice towards whoever disrespects the mountains. Whether this is true or not, or whether they were just an animal which protects its own space is up for debate. However, in the Ural Mountains of the Soviet Union in 1959, the concept of the Yeti was brought to a new and terrifying public awareness when a group of hiking students from the Ural Polytechnical Institute was found slaughtered and mutilated in what is now known as the Dyatlov Pass incident. Since then, Yeti sightings there have increased, as well as the disappearance of up to nine more hikers as late as 2019. The pass was named after expedition leader Igor Dyatlov, a 23-year-old radio engineering student who was leading a ski trip. Eight men and two women went with him, all grade two hikers with ski tour experience in receiving grade three level upon their return, the highest you can acquire and would require traversing at least 300 kilometers. On January 23, 1959, the Dyatlov group had their route approved by officials and they were off the very same day. Now, I live in the prairies of Alberta, within a short distance of our Western Rockies. The temperatures here can easily drop as low as Siberia. Possibly the most deafening aspects of these winters is the silence. The snow absorbs all sound like nature's studio and very little is left of any living thing outside. When the Dyatlov group fell silent in the frozen landscape on February 12th, by February 20th, the families demanded a searcher party be dispatched to the Ural Mountain region to find them. On February 26th, the first sign of the party was found. Mikhail Sheravan, the student who found the tent, said that the tent was torn in half, covered with snow. It was empty, and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. The investigators on site noticed that the tent was torn from the inside. The group had not only left the safety and heat of the camp, but they had left in one hell of a hurry, leaving behind jackets, shoes, socks, and all their aid. They followed some of the tracks down to the edge of the woods on the opposite side of the pass. At the forest edge, under a large Siberian pine, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire. There were the first two bodies shoeless, dressed in underwear. The branches on the tree were broken up to five meters high, suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed up in attempts to get a better view or perhaps to escape the same thing that had driven them from the tent. The true horrors, however, were still to come. Between the pine and the camp, they found three more corpses. Upon examination, it looked as if they were trying to make their way back to the camp in the dark, but the four travelers, including Dyatlov himself, remain missing until their horrific discovery on May the 4th. Upon inquiry, the nightmare began to unfold for investigators. It was determined that the first hikers were found dead of hypothermia and were found in the bloody clothes of the other students, suggesting that they had taken clothing from the other bodies rather than risk going back to the tent for their things. 
Three of the hikers had fatal injuries. One had his skull cracked open. Two more had their chest crushed in. According to one investigator, the force required to cause such damage would have been extreme, impact injuries like one would incur in a car crash. All four bodies had been found at the bottom of the creek in a running stream of water and had soft tissue damage to their head and face. One student was missing her tongue, eyes, and parts of her lips, as well as facial tissue and a fragment of skull bone, while another had his eyes torn out. One more had his eyebrows ripped from his face. The entire attack, according to primatologists and cryptozoologists, had all the terrifying hallmarks of an attack by a great ape. Chimpanzees, for example, tend to target the face of their victims, tearing at eyes, tongue, noses, and lips, as well as smashing their fists into chests and skulls. The local people in the area knew the answer to the mystery that no one wanted to hear, but they were ignored. Immediately, suspicions turned to the local tribe, the Manzi people. To dispel the theory of an attack by an indigenous group, the lead investigator stated that the severe injuries the students endured could not have been caused by human beings because the force of the blows had been too strong. The horror, however, lingered. With no suspects, no one to blame, the investigators turned to one piece of physical evidence that they could collect, a camera that had been found lying in the snow next to one of the bodies. Upon examination of the film, one photo stood out from the rest. One of the last photos on the roll was of an upright, bipedal creature with dark fur leaning out from behind a tree and seemingly watching the hikers. Immediately, the files were hidden away in Russia's archives, never to be seen again until, in 2009, when they were released to the public eye. In the meantime, the Dyatlov Pass became notorious for more disappearances. Hikers that would set out through the pass would disappear, never to be heard from again, all while sightings of the Yeti grew more and more common. In 2019, the Indian Army, who was doing an exercise in the area, photographed a plethora of large great ape tracks in the same area. This made the local papers immediately. Finally, during the same year, Russia felt compelled to reopen the investigation, but with a clause. The investigators were only allowed to investigate three possible explanations. These consisted of a slab avalanche, an avalanche, or a hurricane. All were eliminated. In July of 2020, the Russians finally gave in to the notion that an avalanche must have indeed been the cause of death, and it was ruled official. However, there are grave issues with this theory, and it does not explain the strange photograph of the oddly formed stranger lurking in the trees. The location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place. The bodies had a very fine layer of snow covering them, and the bodies didn't appear in any way to have been swept away from the camp. Other issues included the fact that the area had no history of avalanche before or since the incident, and an analysis of the terrain suggests that even if there could have been a very specific avalanche that found its way into the area, its path would have gone past the tent. In 2019, a Swedish-Russian expedition was made to the site, and after investigations, they proposed that a violent catabatic wind was a plausible explanation for the incident a rare and sudden hurricane-like wind that comes with a severe drop in temperature. However, this does little to explain the severe injuries, the photograph, or the other missing hikers who have disappeared since. The local people are clear on their thoughts. They believe firmly it was, to them, the most obvious explanation. 
Since then, it is said to be commonly known among them as Yeti territory. That pass is out of bounds for anyone who values their lives. Visitors are encouraged to avoid it if they want to see another hike in their life. And this proves to be true to this day, as hikers continue to vanish in areas across the world where Yetis are frequently sighted. We like to think, as investigators, that we can study such creatures of the wild from a steady distance. They live in remote areas of the imagination, worlds away in the hilltops of places we read about in textbooks. But Yeti sightings include Canada and the United States, specifically Mount Shasta in California, where investigator Brian David Wallenstein, out for a walk with his family after a Thanksgiving dinner, encountered a family of three Yetis at a rundown ski lodge on the mountainside. Rare as it is, the most elusive of cryptids has been sighted in locations where one thinks they would be more apt to run into a Sasquatch before ever running across a Yeti. Russian hominologist Dr. Igor Burtsev believes that these growing reports of encounters have directly to do with one thing, climate change. Just as other animals are being forced to change territories and to adapt to new hunting habits and changing habitat, the Yeti is no different. Urban sprawl, even in the mountains of Tibet, has begun to encroach on what was once forest and wilderness. Burtsev goes on to speak on the notion that the Yeti's change in behavior really is a warning. Local people who live amongst these remote creatures believe they are protectors of the forest, spirit guardians of nature, and their frequent appearances are a message to those who are not respecting the environment. Regardless of the conclusions you reach about the Dyatlov Pass or thousands of reports, photographs, and documented physical evidence of the infamous abominable snowman, we still tell our stories around the campfire about the monsters in the woods. We speak of dark tales on cold winter nights and typically go to bed, safe and warm, to get up the next day, believing they are just stories. However, as we get closer to nature every day, as we push the boundaries of human outreach and habitat, we may want to rethink the idea that the Yeti is simply a legend. Soon, we may no longer have the luxury to tell ourselves it will all be fine in the morning. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Next up, Morgan and I chat with our guest, Lyle Blackburn. Here's the audio of that conversation. Today, I'm I'm so happy that we get such an amazing guest because we're, we're so lucky on Supernatural Circumstances to, to have some of, I think, the, the brightest minds in, in cryptozoology and parapsychology and all the sciences. And it, it's so cool. And uh, Lyle, 
Lyle Blackburn is just another one of those really great minds and adventurous spirits that we get to talk to. And it's, it's wonderful. Uh, so a little bit about Lyle for our audience. Uh, Lyle Blackburn is a native Texan known for his work in writing, music, and film. He is the author of several acclaimed books, including The Beast of Boggy Creek and Sinister Swamps, whose subject matter reflects his lifelong fascination with legendary creatures and strange phenomenon. Lyle is also the founder of the rock band Ghoul Town and a narr narrator and producer of documentary films such as The Mothman of Point Pleasant and Boggy Creek Monster. And guys, if you have not seen them, see them. The documentaries are amazing. I love The Bray Road Beast as well. Lyle is a frequent guest on radio programs such as Coast to Coast AM and has been featured on various television shows airing on Animal Planet, Destination America, Travel Channel, Discovery Science, and Shudder. In his work with Monsters and Mysteries in America, he served as both consulting producer and special episode host. Lyle, if I missed anything, feel free to fill it in. That takes up the whole show. <laughs> the bio. I know. I know. I have the same problem. Um, but I mean, it's all it's all worth mentioning because you you've done so much. And today we were talking about um, the Yeti and Sasquatch and missing people. And I'm so glad you're here to sort of throw some input on this because it's I think it's been theorized for a long time over at least over the last number of years that, you know, some of these great apes like Yetis and, and whatnot might actually be responsible for attacks um, for missing people and, and things like that. Um, and the Yeti has been known to be a little bit more on the edgy side than, than Sasquatch. Is this, is this common? Well, there's actually many more reports of Bigfoot or Sasquatch aggression than there are Yeti. Um, you know, over the years, the Yeti is what sightings there are typically, you know, or from a distance, a figure in the distance or something, you know, observed moving across the, you know, the mountain passes. Um, and a lot of the Yeti, you know, the belief in the Yeti comes from secondhand stories or footprints. Westerners found mostly footprints, um, which led to a lot of newspaper coverage. But the Yeti, you know, in my opinion, there's there's a few major stories that kind of suggest that they could be aggressive. But for mo the most part, like most of these, they're just shy, reclusive, elusive sort of beasts. Yeah, that that makes sense. And you know, with all the encounters that I've I've read about over the years, because I find I find the the hominids and the the Sasquatch cases. It, if I could have if I could have done something else with my career other than parapsychology, it would have been <laughs> it would have been cryptozoology because I, I find these these animals so interesting. Um, and there seem to be such distinct behavioral and physical differences between these hominids. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, depending on the region and what's being described, whether that's, you know, regional cases of around the U.S. of, of certain uh, Bigfoot-like creatures or just on a world scale where a creature, you know, a similar hominid, you know, upright bipedal ape-like creatures reported in Australia or China or, of course, in the Himalayas where the Yeti is, you know, they, they can differ and, you know, that that enters into the sort of motif and 
the general understanding of them. You know, as somebody who, you know, focused a lot of research on the legendary case of the Boggy Creek Monster, which was made famous by the 1970s film, The Legend of Boggy Creek, you know, and that was, it was kind of a horror film slash documentary. And and that really played up the aggressive nature of this creature and which was literally what people reported attacks and things like that. And so that kind of got me interested in, you know, what, what other attacks, you know, are there by these creatures? And of course there's incidents like Ape Canyon from the 1920s where Bigfoots were assailing some miners and, uh, you know, in the Pacific Northwest. And then, um, you know, the descriptions of these creatures, depending on where they're located, like I said, I mean, it's a kind of a complicated thing, but, you know, skunk apes are described a little bit differently as maybe a Bigfoot of the Pacific Northwest. You know, skunk apes live in a swampy environment and are more allegedly ape-like. Um, and then, uh, you know, you go to descriptions of the Yeti where it's, you know, more like a almost, uh, you know, a bear-like creature or a feral human, you know, but yeah. without specimens to analyze it's just hard to say what the true you know biological differences really are between these things i always sort of uh thought of them as like different breeds of dog if that maybe that's too simple uh a thing for them uh they just seem like they have so many similarities but the differences are like from a poodle to a rottweiler kind of thing yeah certainly i mean you know Though it's hard, you know, dogs have been given the, you know, the red carpet to, in order to breed. And we've facilitated so much of that, that, you know, it's kind of a stretch to say we even have one species of, you know, bipedal ape-like creatures existing. So I think that it's probably not a case where there's a lot of different, but there's certainly, like you say, there just like other animals, you know, there's brown bear and polar bear and grizzly bear. That could easily be, you know, a dozen different species that are closely related yet different and may have adapted that way due to their their environment because these are, you know, allegedly living in, in all sorts of environments around the world. Yeah, and it's 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 so it's so neat when they you know, you've, you've heard of people like Dr. Jeff Meldrum and and uh, you know, John Bindernagel and place, people like that, you know, when they, they compare these prints and the prints are distinctly different. Um, like, you know, prints that have been found of, of the, the Sasquatch look notably different than, say, for example, the prints with the the uh, the the divergent toe of, of the Yeti. And it's so it's, it's interesting, but it makes sense that these, you know, these different creatures have adapted to these different terrains and i mean it, yeah it just to, to me it makes sense and, and speaking of of bears and, and and things like that um there were thoughts for a little while from um oxford and lausanne universities uh that the yeti might be in fact some sort of prehistoric bear or or something like that due to the dna that was analyzed by professor brian sykes and there was a, a discovery of hair in bhutan so for the audience um, that was compared to the jawbone of an ancient bear that was found out to be the the same. Um, and yet, you know, the, the Sherpa people that are there have said, you know, there's, there's no way, like, this is not a bear. This is, this is an upright bipedal creature. What, 
what what's your thought on that well yeah certainly i mean with you know the modern science that we have to analyze things when they compared that it did come up with a match to um an ancient polar bear which you know then the theories were wow you know maybe we have the surviving species of polar bear and even though that's not a you know an ape it still is it's a cryptid you know something that that is surviving that we didn't expect to survive you know such as a coelacanth or something um you know but that you know like most of these things isn't definitive and i think there was some debate on where these samples came from yeah you know some of them came from you know some specimen that was alleged to be a yeti and uh already kind of fabricated or known already to be a bear so you know of course that's going to come back saying it's a bear so you know that none of these ever really answer the question other than to say that well that's a possibility we may have an explanation here that is more mundane it's a bear but still something that we didn't expect but again until there's an actual body there these are just grasping at straws or or grasping at hairs just to try to (laughs) you know um answer a huge question so um you know it is a big question it, it is a big question and i and i think it's 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 such an important it's such an important question in the you know the the history of of people and and humanity and we've learned so much over the last even the last 5 years about the divergence of the human where we are now humans and and uh you know homo sapiens and and all of all of neanderthals you know, I think there's more discoveries now coming out about the evolution of of who we are than ever before. Right. And and that just goes to show you, we never really know everything. And that's a whole premise here is that people, oh, well, we've discovered everything. We know everything, you know, and we know everything from the fossil record, which obviously isn't true. We're constantly revising science and revising that uh, bushy tree of our own ancestry as well as similar uh, or our you know our brethren in the great apes so you never know and, and that's why we should never be content to just sit there and even in the case of a yeti where ah, you know it, it goes kind of interweaves between folklore and sightings of an animal well we don't we don't really have an answer so we should always be open to these kind of tests of, you know, continually trying to, to solve the puzzle. Absolutely. And yeah, and every, every piece of this helps. And, you know, even from, from the parapsychology standpoint, because that's, that's where I come from, you know, that, that what you just said about possibilities, I think is just hitting the nail on the head that, you know, we tend to, people tend to shut down that, that, that possibilities are so, they're so vast. There are so many. And we, we really need to remember that, you know, this science is a tool moving forward. It's, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're getting glimpses and pieces of the puzzle, but it's a tool. And, you know, when you're mentioning the sort of the folklore of, of the Yeti and the, the, the Aboriginal, the Sherpa people and whatnot of the area. And I mean, they are a hundred percent convinced that this is, that this is something else, that this is, you know, a uh, like the god, basically like the god of the mountains, the protector of the mountains. Um, 
and you know if you if you had a case like we in the in the podcast here we talked about the the Dyatlov pass and how there was theories going around thinking that maybe you know this this might have been caused by running into a yeti or or something some other creature like that um do you do you think that some of these these hominids might actually be responsible for some of the missing persons cases um that that have been reported over the years yeah i think it's definitely possible i mean if we have to presume that the creatures exist first and then second if they do then certainly like any animals there could be rogue individuals that have a temperament that's you know more aggressive or they could have felt felt threatened in some way i mean most of the time bears are you know just look at you and move on i've I've literally been in the mountains and seen wild bear walking around and while most times that's the case occasionally if they felt threatened or in certain circumstances they could attack and so you know some of these stranger disappearances were seemingly no explanations and other things that obviously crosses over into well you know could it have been a bigfoot or what have you at the cause and now we sort of have two mysteries intersecting but still that that could very well be and a creature like this is big it could be very dangerous very powerful and you know simply carry somebody off very easily if they wanted to yeah i think if yeah i i agree and and i mean it's 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 amazing when you look at other you know, other apes or, or hominids or, or anything like that and the level of 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 power that these things that these things have and their their adaptability to be in these environments is is one of the things that i i so admire about them um you know if if a case like this came across your desk where you know the, the somebody was was either you know deemed missing or a, a body was found or something like that from the perspective of of our current technology and nowadays um, as a cryptozoologist how would you go about determining if this was a factor in a case like this well i think the you know the first thing to do as in whether you're looking at a case of a of an, of an attack or just a sighting is to try to eliminate everything else Absolutely. the more common down-to-earth explanations so you would just start like you would any any other case where you know is this a place where you know somebody would pull a hoax or is is it possible that you know what is the credibility of the witness and if we had a body that was you know been attacked by an animal obviously that that can be you know that person's injuries could be examined by um, you know doctors and things which would you know help eliminate common possibilities so you start there and then you know if there's you kind of rule out everything else and it kind of falls into the mystery zone then you could say well okay what cryptid reports do we have around here you know is this a place where there's been a lot of bigfoot attacks i mean you know a lot of bigfoot uh sightings and and therefore the possibility of an attack there could you know could take place so you know i would just go about like that and then you know again you're just kind of going to run into you know where you're speculating but yeah you kind of chalk that up in that 
you know, I've got a case file of attacks where it's like, well, here's a bunch of stuff that, you know, could be Bigfoot could be responsible for or Dogman or what have you. Yeah. And yeah, I, I agree. And very similar to, to anything that, that we do from the parapsychological standpoint too, is, you know, I, I think that, that ruling out of, of these, these other explanations sometimes I think can, can get overlooked, but at the same time, I think that can get in the way sometimes as well, where people are leaning into a, an explanation that might be a natural explanation, but really doesn't fit what's happened. <laughs> <laughs> so I like it's 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 a it's a catch twenty two. Do you find that with this work as well, where the you know the explanation can be likely that it's something like a Bigfoot, and the experts are leaning in a direction that just doesn't add up? Oh, certainly. I mean, there there's sometimes where it's being explained away. You know that even that is more absurd than than just saying it could have been a Bigfoot, you know, and it just all, all depends on who's trying to explain it away and their own perspectives and what, where they're starting from with beliefs. You know, I mean, I just start totally neutral. I, I neither, you know, I'm just trying to go where things point, whether that's a something really weird or just something normal. Uh, some people come at it, you know, a skeptic's going to come at it. Ah, it's not a Bigfoot. It's got to be this. And, you know, they've, they've provided an explanation that's, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like you said, just try to make it fit, uh, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, that, that's common just depending on who's providing the explanation. That's the one thing that's, that's always caught me about the Dyatlov Pass case was the, the, the fact that the 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 Russian government gave the investigators two answers that they were allowed to come to. <laughs> it was either an avalanche or a slab avalanche, and that was it. They weren't allowed to consider any anything else. It was just, you know, you you have you have to pick a conclusion, pick the one you like best, and that's the one that we're going to run with. And it's it's infuriating for for investigations. I think that you know still don't have those answers and you know you hear sometimes about this evidence disappearing from from universities and things being lost and you know in the case of for example the minnesota Iceman, the body just got replaced completely um why do you think there's such contention around these creatures specifically well right i mean yeah like in the case of the the atlov pass it's like they don't want to hear anything else and you don't you don't do investigations like that you just start neutral and say well pursue what the evidence shows you can't just say well here's your choice it's not a multiple choice conclusion here (laughs) but you know most i don't know most established organizations most scientists everything else is just doesn't want to hear any nonsense about yetis or bigfoot or whatever they've already ruled that out and they're not going to listen you know for various reasons you know obviously this stuff has become such a pop culture type thing you know that they they just don't consider it science or they or they're just ignorant of what there is for evidence or and such so um yeah it's it's just um a problem and, and you know things disappearing or not being treated with respect in terms of 
you know, okay, here we have some hairs that might be from some unknown creature, you know, maybe they're not considered as valuable as some other case that is a, is a crime or something else, you know, and those things get lost and misplaced and, you know, just like all this stuff. But I think that's probably because once it gets into the hands of people who don't take it seriously, it's not handled like it would be something that they do take seriously. So, um, you know, stuff gets mysteriously lost and, uh, it's just the nature of this and also the nature of humans, you know, they lose, they also lose important blood spatter evidence and other things from That's major true. cases, much less, you know, like, oh, it's a, what was it? A Bigfoot hair? You know, I don't know what I did with it. You know? I mean, we, we see a lot of, you mentioned uh, crime cases and we see a lot of tunnel vision in that way. Uh, an investigator will determine that uh, this one individual may be the person involved and then and then we end up convicting the wrong person and i see a lot of parallels in uh the way people think about these creatures and the possibility of them uh they they see one one road and that's the one that they're going to travel down and uh there's no other uh nothing that will drag them from that particular path right and that that's unfortunately human nature you know just pers a person's perceptions and biases and, and, you know, inner, like a hunch, you know, it, it can be wrong. You know, those things aren't precise. And yeah, if you have tunnel vision, then you're going to be chasing the wrong path. And we've seen that on many crime shows where 20 years later, oops, well, you know, we're back to where, you know, the first guy we interviewed was actually the guy and we got sidetracked or they ignored something and, and, you know, should have followed up. And that's exactly the same with any of this other stuff. You know, biases just govern where people put their efforts. So how, how do you address that bias in somebody? If you, if you come up against it um, in somebody who's not willing to, to have the conversation, uh, how do you address it in a way that makes it maybe more palatable for them? Well, I think just in general, if I, if I'm investigating or you know, doing research on these topics, you know, I always try to identify with, with people who are skeptical. I mean, it's natural and, you know, and I try to just say, you know, yeah, it's, you know, the, I, I understand where you're coming from, but Hey, listen to this and let me tell you a few things. And usually when you kind of identify with a person, instead of just coming at them with, you know, you need to believe in this or whatever, you know, you say, yeah, I understand why you're skeptical. They'll usually kind of listen to you and then come around to, well, you know, as a matter of fact, something weird did happen or whatever. And, and just kind of understanding everybody's different and their views are based on just what they know. So I, I do that with any investigation and usually can get along with people, whether they're total skeptics or whatever, they'll have the conversation, which is what you want when you're doing investigations. You want everybody's input. So you don't want to sort of, you know, alienate them right from the gate. So it, it, it works well. Um, you know, especially if you're trying to get some information from say a park ranger or somebody else, you know, that doesn't, you know, doesn't usually want to talk about it. I just say, Hey, you know, we totally understand, you know, we, you know, you're, you're just protecting your job and your, things you know this is off the record and if you're cool usually people will talk to you mm. yeah it's 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 true and 
you know, I think, I think this subject matter has a, a factor in it that even, even criminal cases and things like that don't have, which is sort of the uncanny valley factor. And I, I wonder with, with Bigfoot and uh, the, you know, the Yeti and, and things like that, if that might be playing on people as well, that these are just a little bit too close to people that that it sort of puts that wall up even even maybe a little bit a little bit of a stronger wall than say the average you know than the average investigation have you found that yeah sure i mean if you know if if you sort of give any indication you think bigfoot is real for example yeah you're that that's that's a whole world of you know, it's, it's human, like it's, you know, you have to question like uh, everything, like, well, well, if this thing exists, you know, what are, you know, how does this affect my views on the world? And, yeah, um, you know, obviously and just straight up people, you know, Bigfoot is associated with crazy people and weird stuff and everything else. And people are, don't want to be associated with that. You know, they, they probably don't, and that's kind of the general consensus is the news always snickers now, especially and makes uh, Bigfoot. They don't understand much about it beyond what they see on the news and they don't want to be laughed at. Well, I don't want to be say what I saw because then people are going to think I'm crazy. So you got to make them understand that, look, this, these reports are not made by all crazy people. Those are the exception. You know, the most reports can be made by, everyday people you know from policemen to doctors to hunters and you gotta you know make sure they understand that they're not going to be lumped into crazy because of course people are uh you know mindful of that so um you know i think right off the bat people just think ah it's a crazy subject when they don't know much about it that's kind of their perception yeah, yeah, I think people people will even avoid reporting something because uh -huh. they think that they'll be perceived as a crazy person. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we always say that for every one report, you know, there's probably 10 others that people just didn't say anything. But, you know, I've seen over the last, you know, I've been doing this for, you know, a long time and I've seen a, a shift in people being willing to talk, you know, you know, 12 years ago or something, people were like, uh, you know, still kind of hesitant, but because of so many TV shows and, and, you know, finding Bigfoot and things, people have seen examples of, well, that guy sounds just like me. You know, he doesn't, they've seen normal people reporting these things. So I think people are more willing now to say, yeah, you know, I saw something like that than say, a, a decade ago, or especially like 30 years ago, you know, people were very reluctant to talk. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, it's, it, I, I think these, these skeptics, they're so, they can be so uh, bent on the idea that these people are just seeing something and jumping to the conclusion that that's what it is. But I know even from, from, you know, in, in investigating things like survival after death and people having experiences and and whatnot is that that's not the first thing they go to witnesses see something they perceive something and they do tend to go through the list of what could this be they're not jumping to those conclusions and i think 
I think skeptics need to need to sort of dial back the idea that all of these people are just, you know, oh, I saw I saw a Bigfoot or I saw this or I saw that. And it's like, hold on a minute. Like these people, when you talk to them, and I'm sure you found this, too, is that they went through in their head what this could be. Is this a bear? Am I looking at an unidentified animal? And they they all seem to come to the conclusion. This is something I've not seen before. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think most cases people have already thought of all these sort of things just to try to rationalize it in their own mind. And then if they, you know, then come to the conclusion that, you know, I just can't explain this, then they start looking on the internet or, you know, finding someone to tell or post it on a, you know, post it in Facebook or whatever. So yeah, they, they've reviewed these things before talking. What would you tell people just to, to bring this to a conclusion, what what would you tell people that have either had a frightening encounter or are you know holding back from 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 talking about it, or you know are sort of stuck in that that uh, that that fear that that fear state about whatever it is that has gone on and and whatnot? What what would what should they do if if they're in that that situation? Well, I think if it's something that's bothering them, you know, if it's something like that, and they probably can't talk about it to just anyone, then definitely, you know, want to reach out to someone that, you know, is going to listen and put it into perspective. And I, I don't know how they, there's no one way to find somebody, you know, if you've read a book on the subject, maybe you like the approach of that writer, you can look them up on the internet, or you've seen somebody on a TV show that you thought sounded uh, rational and and uh, well balanced about the subject, you could look them up because now you know you can really find people so much easier on Facebook and such um, that people should, if they want to share, if that's what they feel like doing, and if they feel they've had, you know, if they got something to contribute or something like I said that's bothering them, to to definitely just find someone that you could tell that's involved in these subjects like like you guys or you know maybe a podcast they've listened to a lot of these stories and podcasts are another thing that have really helped now because you hear these podcasts and you hear people just telling of these stories so it's like you go well i'm not the only one that saw something weird so you know just find someone that you can kind of just share that story and you can even share it and say hey don't don't post publicly or po post my name but hey what do you think you know am i crazy or if is this something that that you've seen elsewhere and that that'll give people, you know, some amount of, I guess, uh, counseling on the subject, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, I think it's an area that, that a lot of people struggle with, but you're totally right where nowadays we are, we are sitting in this, this wonderful age of, of, of information, you know, even on these bizarre subjects like the Yeti or the Dyatlov Pass or, um, you know, Sasquatch encounters, whether they're, you know, in the, you know, in the mountains and the you know, whatever, in the different regions around the world. And we've got this amazing access now. And I, I, I think it's, it is just a, it's a, it's a resource that the people can really use and reach out to. Is there anything, is there any resources specifically for information, like solid information on some of the stuff that you would recommend? Uh, I mean, you know, I always, I always say books are your best source, you know, if you, you know, if you, 
encountered a flying humanoid, for example, you know, there's books been written on that subject or Mothman, you know, if you've seen, saw a Bigfoot, there's, there's plenty of books that will give you a historical ass, historical history of Bigfoot or even some in your region, you know, there's all these, you know, if you saw it in Kentucky, you know, you might get a book on, on Bigfoot in Kentucky. Um, and, and those are a place where you can read and then you'll get a better perspective on the history and go, and again, just seeing that other people, you know, have seen things like this and, and through that kind of research, I mean, television, you know, some of the stuff is credible, some of it's not, you know, that definitely find that <laughs> as, <laughs> not as scholarly of a source. So I would just say <laughs> your best source of inf information is always seek out some books not as scholarly as a, as a as a source is possibly the best definition <laughs> of a lot of the television shows that I have ever heard. <laughs> yes, and, you know, I often get that. You know, hey, I saw this on a TV show. Oh and I'm yeah. Like, okay, let me explain yeah. what's the real truth behind that or whatever. So, you know, books. You know, books can have errors too, but I think that's still a good source and not even stuff posted on the internet because I see that posted and copied and yeah. distorted. And it's like, dude, you'll go back to the source and, and somebody who spent some quality time researching the subject and can give the best um, encapsulation of, of whatever monster or cryptid or phenomenon that you're wanting to find out about. How did you get started in this? Um, you know, it's just something that, I liked at an early age and, you know, I can kind of credit the Yeti for that because I, I got a book when I was in elementary school that had stories of the Yeti and Bigfoot Loch Ness monster, sort of the early stuff. And I, I thought, man, this, this is really cool. And I'd grown up hunting with my father. So we did a lot of bow hunting and stuff. So I spent a lot of times in woods and through and looked at small towns and places like that. And just that kind of pairing of, what lurks in the woods, you know, just beyond, you know, the road always captured my imagination. And then I saw the legend of Boggy Creek movie mm -hmm. um, when I was young. And that, that incident in Arkansas is close to where I live in Texas, about three hours away. So then it kind of made it, wow, okay, that's close to home. And, you know, I just sort of read books on the subject and so forth. And then eventually uh, when I wrote, wrote my first book, it was on the, the Boggy Creek case because that had always kind of interested me and I wanted to research it as an adult. And then once I wrote that book, it was immediately television shows started calling and the book sold well. And then I thought, okay, this is great. I'm going to continue this. So I just kind of continued researching and writing books. Well, you're by far, I think, one of the most knowledgeable people on the on the subject. And it's funny that you're mentioning Boggy Creek because that was my first introduction visually to this as well when I was a kid. I was in the same boat and I, I remember seeing it and I thought it was just horror movie. And then somewhere I heard that, no, this was this was based on on a true story. And my mind was just blown. And I thought this is this is amazing. This is amazing. So that was that was my first introduction too. So I, I completely identify with that. But Lyle, thank you so much for for chatting with us today. I, I know your your time's limited, so I don't want to keep you. And but if if tell us website, tell audiences where they can find you. 
Well, uh, you can find out more about me and my various works at lyleblackburn.com, L-Y-L-E blackburn.com. And, you know, of course, my books are available on Amazon and, and other places. And uh, let's see, of course, we mentioned earlier the, the work on the documentary films. Those are done by Small Town Monsters, who has done many, many great documentaries now since I first teamed up with them on the Boggy Creek Monster. Um, and you can view those on Amazon Prime and even some on YouTube now and other places. So uh, you can go to Amazon Prime and search Lyle Blackburn and, and watch those. So, um, but yeah, LyleBlackburn.com. Yeah. And for the, for the audience, the, those, those the books, as well as the documentaries are, they're it just so good. They're so in depth and they come at it from this, this beautiful, factual yet storytelling perspective and i which I, I i thoroughly love so i mean i know i'm definitely glued to whatever's <laughs> whatever you guys have coming out because it is the, the stuff's so informative and speaking of resources that are really good that's that is one of them so lyle thank you so much for this absolutely thanks for having me thanks lyle well hey that was great <laughs> All right, I think cool. that went well. I think so too. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to just talk and talk about these so so many cool aspects. So yeah, oh, it it is. They're they're so fascinating. I'm 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 in Alberta, and we've got so many Bigfoot sightings here, and there's they're they're all over our woods and close to Calgary and stuff like that. And they were starting to be seen. Um, when the, when the pandemic hit, when the lockdowns were, were going on, they were, they were being seen closer and closer to the city of Calgary. And it was just, yeah, it's so, so interesting to live so close to the, <laughs> these amazing things. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like, you know, you can go just about any place and find some history of at least some kind of cryptid. Oh yeah. I mean, they're, they're definitely, they're definitely kicking around Alberta. That's for that's for any of anyone that's a hunter always comes back with stories, especially from northern northern Alberta, Nordag and places like that. They're always coming back and saying, Oh no, no, they're there. They're definitely there. Absolutely. Canada just seems like Bigfoot country to me, Sasquatch country. Oh, oh it definitely yeah. is. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's just amazing. Well, we'll yeah, it's, get everything it's... out there and um thank you for all your websites and pictures and we'll promote the heck out of you so awesome i appreciate it well, thanks lyle all right y'all take it easy you, you too, too. <laughs> have a good one okay bye here's morgan for this episode's segment of spiritual health care in this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called intention segments. Sometimes things can feel really overwhelming, and we struggle to know where to focus first. In paranormal investigation, when you have a big property to manage or any case with multiple moving parts— the best thing that we can do is begin to treat each space as a segment. And you can do the exact same thing in your life. The purpose of this exercise is to allow yourself to become more mindful and present, reducing stress, and allowing time to shape your point of attraction into something better and more intentional than just running on default settings. 
Your day is made up of segments in time. Washing up in the morning is a segment. Driving to work is a segment. Eating lunch is a segment. Our days are a string of segments bound together by time. What we would encourage you to try on days when you're feeling overwhelmed is to set an intention before each segment. Instead of trying to manage the entire day at once, stop and set a small intention such as, I'm looking forward to a peaceful drive to work before you get in your car. Then take a breath and approach the segment expecting your set intention. You don't need to be present with the other 20 things you need to do that day. You now only have to expect a peaceful drive to work. When you get there, set another intention for the next segment, and so on. Suddenly, what felt like unmanageable becomes an opportunity to be more mindful, less stressful, and far more conscious than if you were to just rush through the day on autopilot in a flurry of negative thinking. This is an opportunity to slow down, infuse each daily segment with what it is that you want, and then begin to reshape the overall feeling place of the day. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at DarkPatine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now. <laughs>